Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another Finance Friday. I should have a jingle for it, shouldn't I? Three podcasts a week. I mean, y'all get a lot of me. Anyways, today's show, we have a Bridger on. Ooh, Bridgers. I know Bridgers have a have a reputation of sorts, um, but I think... I think you're really going to enjoy this one because Scott understands this reputation and he set up Roma Finance to change it. And I think, you know, from listening to him and hearing the way he's talking about things, I feel like, and actually some of the, some of the amazing numbers that he shared with me as well, I feel like he's achieved that. He mentioned that the industry stats are 7% of most bridging lenders books are in default. Roma have 0.25%. So 30 times less than the industry. Um, And they've only ever repossessed three properties out of, like 600 deals so you can tell that there's something a bit different here right uh have a listen to it see what you think now roma do deal with people you know without a broker introduction i prefer to deal with bridges directly because it's a lot easier than a mortgage so you know just makes it easier so if you want a you know introduction to them and straight to one of the bdms of the um of the company Pop me an email, tej at bricksandmore.co. I will introduce you and make sure you get looked after. Thanks, y'all. Scott Marshall of Roma Finance. Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you. Morning, Tej. How are you? I am very well, sir. How are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm very well, thank you. Very well, indeed. Great you... weekend, great weather. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah it's, it's, it's a shame that it's not going to continue. <laughs> Sounds about right for England. Um, <laughs> so, indeed. you know, you are the first Bridger I have ever got on the podcast. Uh, and I okay, think this you. is your, your first podcast as well. So this is going to be interesting from, from both our perspectives. Um, Absolutely. So, you know what, for the people who maybe haven't heard of you or, or your company, could you give us like a brief sort of maybe introduction slash overview of what your company does and is? Sure, with pleasure. Um, so, uh, my company is called Roma Finance. Uh, I, I formed the company uh, way back in 2008 originally. Uh, the business is named after my late grandparents, Rose and Max. Um, my background before I started Roma Finance, uh, my background was I was credit and risk director at another uh, another lender, a uh, subprime lender that most people have heard of in, in the sector. Um, and they do things, you know, extremely well. They've got challenges like most big businesses have um, in other areas. And I was determined to fix um, the areas that they've got challenges in and bring in, if you like, best practice from other lenders that I admire um, in the market. Uh, originally in 2008, we started purely um, as an underwriting uh, service for uh, lending for other lending businesses. We wrote the first loan in, in December 2010, ran the business as a hobby business, if you can call it that, um, for three or four years, um, took on our first member of staff in 2014, and really set about um, creating a hybrid between the businesses that I uh, admired in the market and, and, and the lending businesses that I admired in the market. I, I don't mind sharing that with you. Um, I admired um, together. Uh, I admired uh, Handel's Banking, I admired, I admired uh, Golden Tree, Masthaven, uh, and also a business that was then known as um, Drawbridge, 
that later became uh, Dragonfly and is now known as Optimus Property. So those five companies, um, they do lots of things uh, very well. They've got challenges many businesses have in other areas. Um, and what I tried to do was, was make Roma a hybrid um, of those five businesses, taking the best bits of each of those businesses and putting it into uh, into something different and offering customers something unique and something different. Um, we ran the business from December, uh, or, sorry, from January 2014, um, in for two and a half years, um, almost as a, a proof of concept uh, type operation. Um, secured our first funding line with the RBS in July 2016, our second funding line with the Cambridge Building Society in July 17, and where we sit now um, in on the 1st of July 2019, we have now seven different funding lines, um, six of which are six of which are from institutions that um, you probably would have heard of, including the RBS and Cambridge Building Society, um, and really what is attractive. For the institutions in backing us um, is that you know I talked about the fact that we were a hybrid of these five other lenders um, way back in 2014. Um, in 20 October 2017, when we really started to get scale, we totally um, disrupted the market with a new way of doing bridging finance, a new way of um, dealing with um, the legal process, of simplifying the legal process to the point where we only ask. Our lawyers only ask eight, eight questions, um, simplifying the uh, structure of a loan, making it cheaper, making it better for a customer, making it more fit for purpose, um, changing the way that we, changing our workflows, changing the processes, changing the structure, changing the documentation, changing the way that we instruct um, our lawyers so that you know we're dictating to our lawyers what to do and what to say and what to ask um, to speed up and streamline the process. Um, and, the, and, and essentially the objective and the objective of all of that was to improve the customer journey. Um, and so from the 1st of October 2017, when we implemented all these changes, um, to where we are now, we've um, quadrupled the size of the business in, in, in a space of 18 months. And where we, what we want to do now um, is scale again. Um, and within two years, we'll be a £100 million business. Um, and so all of this, all of this from... Um, you know, little old me that was sat in my car um, asking, you know, can I have a deal, can I have a deal, can I have a deal, um, to where we are now, which is a business with um, 26 staff, um, as I said, with seven different funding lines, um, with a, uh, of which, you know, it's institutional. Um, we have, I'm, I'm delighted to say in our history, you know, we've, we've written more than £100 million of, of, of loans. Um, we've written um, 600 transactions in the, le- in the last three and a half years. We've never... We've never ever had, I'm delighted to say, we've never ever had a bad debt. Um, of those 600 transactions that we've done, we've only ever had three that are uh, defaulted. Um, and and again, because of the, the way that we um, underwrite, and we're very much an underwriting their business, um, on each one of those defaults, they've resulted in a repossession. We've allowed our customers to trade out those, those, those loans. Um, even though they've been in repossession. And the fact that we work in this particular way, people like us, and we get many customers coming back to us because of the positive experience they've had of working with us. Um, and we've got customers that are now on their 16th, 17th, 18th uh, transaction with us. Um, and that makes us very proud of what we do. Um, you know, we don't, excuse me, we don't, uh, we're, we're not the most expensive um, lender in the, uh, in the sector by a very long way. Um, we're not the cheapest, but we're, we, you know, we compete with, with, with the best. 
what we do, which is very different, I guess this is, uh, I suppose, coming back to, to, to the question, you know, what makes us unique? What we do, which is very different, is we are a borrower-led business. We put the borrower first. Our view is that a good borrower can make a bad, whatever bad means, can make a bad property into a good property, whereas a bad borrower can turn a good property into a bad property. Okay, And so for us, we're all about the customer. Um, we want to understand that, that person, their background, how they come across the deal, what they're doing to it, how they're going to um, make money, why they're doing the deal, how they come across the opportunity, what profit in it is in it, is, is there in it for them? Because we're effectively buying into that customer and their journey um, and what they're doing with that property to make money from it. So we basically lend money to people that are using our money to make money. Um, and that makes us um, very different from most people in the market. Um, most of the most of the lenders in in the profit in well in the bridging sector, uh, I would say are um, what I would call property pawnbrokers. Okay, they, they look at they look at a property, they look at what that property is worth, um, and they say, right, okay, we're going to give you sixty um, percent loans of value, or we'll give you sixty-five or seventy or so, whatever the figure is, seventy-five percent loans of value. Okay, and they see that being um, that's the value of that asset. Um, whereas what we say is, hang on a minute, um, what is the customer doing with our money? Um, what is that property now? What could that be? Um, and um, and we want to go on a journey with that customer. So for us, it's not about pawnbroking. If it was about pawnbroking, we'd be taking back the properties and extracting value out of them. What we want to, to happen is we want our customers to create value from the properties and, and go on their journey. Um, and hopefully, if we look after them and treat them properly, um, they'll come back to us with, with, with future transactions. And that's important for us um, to get repeat business. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really interesting because one of my next questions was, you know, where do bridges get their money from? So is it, am I right in saying these institutions, these banks essentially take money that they have from, you know, from wherever and they say to you, okay, Mr. Mr. Bridger, Mr. Mr. Bridger, we're going to give you this. We want this percentage back. Do your thing. And and you essentially then make profit on the difference from what they want and what you charge people. Is that right? It's very it's very interesting. Well, bridging lenders get their money from a variety of different sources. So if I just talk about the market generally, um, a bridging lender will get money from uh, it might be the the person that uh, the, the person that owns a bridging company is a high net worth individual and they're lending their own personal money. It might be that they're connected with a lot of high net worth individuals and they're lending the other high net worth individuals' money. It might be that they're a crowd fund, a peer to peer lender or a crowd funder that's getting their money from lots of small retail investors, if you like. It might be that they get the money from institutions like we do, like the RBS or the Cambridge Society. It might be that they get their money from um, uh, private equity. It might be that they get their money through um, off balance sheet finance by. Um, effectively do a forward flow where they sell the loans on. Um, there's lots of ways in which bridging lenders get their money. Okay. Um, what we have done is we have said, look, okay, um, because there's risks in all of them. Okay. There's no nirvana as to where a bridging lender gets their money from. So if it's high net worth that they get the money that, that's, that's backing the lender, then essentially when that high net worth or those high net worths have, have run out of money, then there's no more money available. It might be that um, that the high net worth that, that they decide, I'll just give an extreme example, decides that they want to um, buy a helicopter that day, okay? which means there's no money available for, for, for lending. Okay, um, It might be that they get their money through peer-to-peer, -peer, but 
for whatever reason, a peer-to-peer sector might have some 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 issues, some challenges. You know, some of the peer-to-peer lenders have gone out of business recently, um, and that affects the you know the, the ability of other peer-to-peer lenders to raise money. For example, um, it might be they get the money from institutions, but institutions um, have their own covenants and caveats that they put on the bridging lender. So there's no nirvana as to where anyone bridging lender gets their money from what we've tried to do is to say well actually let's spread our risk okay let, let's spread where we get our money from so of those seven different funding lines um we securitize we've got institutional funding we've got um uh, high net worth funding lines we've got family office funding lines so that the tap should never be turned off so that our customers um there's always money available to them and it's very important and this this comes back to um you know when you are a lender, you do a lot of due diligence on your borrowers to check that they are credit worthy, whatever credit worthy means, but that will mean different things to different lenders. But it's very, very important that a borrower does their due diligence on the lender as well. Okay, and this is very important because a borrower doing due diligence on the lender will give that borrower um, confidence that that lender is going to be with them on their journey too. Because if that lender has only got funding from one funding source, for example, then there's a risk from the borrower's point of view that the lender won't be there for their journey, that the tap might get turned off on the project, that the money isn't there to fund the works as, as, as works are going on. Um, and, you know, th- this is a partnership. It's a two-way thing. The lender is lending money to the bo- excuse me, to the borrower, but the borrower's got to make sure the lender has the money to support them, has it money, has the processes, has the um, infrastructure there to support the borrower on their journey too. Mm. That makes sense. And I think that's something that not a lot of people do because you think, oh, lender slash bank slash whatever. Oh, they, they've got money endlessly. You know, let's let's take it. So that's an interesting point for people listening is to do that due diligence. You know, if you're going through a broker, speak to your broker, understand yeah. the company yeah. and where they get things from. And they should be happy to answer those questions, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, look, do do internet searches. Um, you know, someone can do an internet search on Roma Finance, you know, and, and you'll see what other people said about us. You know, someone can do a, some internet searches on Together, for example, and see what other borrowers have said about them. Um, and we live in an, an age of information where that information is available to, to borrowers to enable the borrowers to make decisions um, about what is the best place to, 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 to borrow money from. Um, and it's very important that, that, that that information is used by the borrower to make sensible borrowing decisions um, because the lender effectively is investing in them and their project um, in the same way that the borrower is trusting that lender to be their partner for that journey too. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, before you mentioned your legal process um, yes. being a lot easier, now one thing I've found and heard a lot with bridging, as you know as well, is that legals end up costing so much and they keep coming back absolutely. and asking for all sorts of crap. Um, yeah. How have you been able to make your legal process a lot smoother to eight questions? That's a very, very good question. Um, in, interesting. When I um, when I started the business, um, I would go and I would instruct. Um, you know, I, I, we had a panel of, of, of three different law firms that we worked with when we started the business, and I found that when we would instruct the three different law firms uh, on exactly the same loan, on exactly the same property, um, the three different law firms would do 
their legal process in three completely different ways. The three different law firms, they would ask different questions. They would follow a different process. Uh, and, and as part of what we did when we totally reinvented and disrupted, uh, reinvented the process and, and disrupted the market just over 18 months ago, we said, well, hang on a minute, this can't be right. It can't be right that the tail is wagging the dog, that the law firms are telling the bridging lender, um, you know, what they should be doing. Um, actually, it's up to the bridging lender to decide what risks they are comfortable with. And it's the bridging lender that should be telling the law firm, law firms what questions to ask. It should be the dog wagging the tail and not the other way around. And so what we, so what we did was we, we said, right, okay, well, we're going to take the bull by its horn. We're going to say to um, our law firms, right, if you've got a loan of this amount or, or on this property and the customer's using the money for this purpose, um, then these are the questions that you ask. And once you get those questions answered, um, then, the, then, then the loan can complete. Um, and so we, another, I'm probably oversimplifying what was a, a huge project that took us um, six months, six months to kind of get over the line. Um, but the result of it was, was that, um, you know, as long as the customer um, is not extending the property outwards or upwards um, and is not um, implementing a material planning concept other than um, an HMO uh, license, then we only ask um, eight questions. Um, and, you know, we can share with our customers and this is very, very important. We can share with our customers and our brokers um, what those eight questions are. So the customer can go to their lawyer and get those eight questions answered. Once they've answered those eight questions, um, they get the money. And it was as simple as that. And so we've had cases now that can complete in, in three to four days. Um, from ground zero, from there being having been, there being no legal. So everybody in the market will say to you, yeah, yeah, we can do deals in, in, in three days too. But they'll be given that deal where there's already been a valuation done, where there's already been um, a legal pack produced, where there's already been um, somebody, another lender would have underwritten that deal to get to a point and then they would have pulled out or it might have been an auction, whatever. We can take a deal from ground zero, there being nothing done, no valuation, no legal work, nothing done in the process, and we can take that deal through to completion um, in three to four days. Um, and we target, yeah, yeah, we, we target, yeah, yeah, and we target. So, so going, you know, your question on legal fees, okay? All of our lawyers, all of our lawyers work on fixed fees, period. They all work on fixed fees. So when when we get a deal in, we've now got a panel. Uh, we had a panel of six. We've now got a panel of four lawyers. Um, when um, when we get a deal, and we don't know whether we're going to give that deal that case to for law firm A, B, C, or D. Okay. So they all have to, but we've got to give the customer a quote for what our legal fees are going to be. So we have um, agreed across the board as a fixed fee. Very simple. All our lawyers work on fixed fees. All our valuers work on fixed fees. They all work to SLAs. And what we do is we benchmark the lawyers against each other so that if you are, and this is why we were a panel of, we had a panel of six and now we've got a panel of four, and if you were uh, one of the firms that didn't do things quickly, we were sharing that data with you, and we kick you off. So we are, so we are driving the law firms. We are the the, 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 the um, engine that's driving the law firms um, to perform better. We benchmark them. We ha have stakeholder days where we invite the lawyers into a room and we share best practice amongst the the, the firms that are on the panel. And um, if you are the law firm that's not performing well, 
you'll be told you're not performing well. You'll be told that, look, your loans are taking 12 days rather than 10 days. This other firm, you know, the other firms we're working with, they're all doing it in 10 days. Why are you doing it in 12? And um, if you want to stay on our panel, you better speed up. You better throw more resource at it. Um, and, you know, this is the way in which we, it's the customer that is and should be at the heart of the journey. Yeah, I love that. And I think that creates a performance culture, you know, between your your panel solicitors, because most solicitors mm-hmm. are reactive, slow, and irritating. So you're pushing them by money, by business to do better. Yes. And I think that's something we should, you know, as investors, we should be doing like with our power team where possible. But we should also, you know, be asking bridges things like this, you know, people on your panel that you use, how good are they? Do you have SLAs? Because... <laughs> You know, we all want things to be done quickly. And then if we don't always check and do our due diligence on our lenders, yes, we will blame them mainly. But we also have to blame ourselves as borrowers for not checking through and and just believing them on face value. So when it comes to like a deal, you know, if if a broker or a person approached you with a deal, how do you Mm. assess it? Is it like a checklist? That's That's a very, very good question, because there are every single in bridging. Um, and development finance, every single deal is different. Every single customer is different. Um, but essentially, um, every single deal is also the same. And a deal will fit into one of four categories. Um, you'll either have um, good borrower, good property, good borrower, bad property, good property, bad borrower, or bad property, bad borrower. Okay, now good and bad. Good and bad mean different things to different people. Okay? Um, but essentially, what we are looking for um, is we are looking for good borrower bad property. That's where we sit in the market. Okay, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to find people um, that are good borrowers. Again, whatever good means, but they are going to do something to that bad property asset to make that to turn that bad property asset into a good property asset and add value to that property. Um, and um, so, and, and we feel that you know if we look after that good borrower and they do a good job on that bad property and that bad property it might it might be something like it might mean the bad property might have no kitchen no bathroom so bad means unmortgageable it might mean bad bad might mean that it's currently commercial um but um it doesn't have really much value as commercial because it really should be resi because it's not income producing commercial it's been a derelict and vacant somewhat for some time and it's got um either planning or it's got permitted development to be turned into resi Okay, so bad means it's not um, income producing, it's not worth what it could be worth, and once it's had some TLC. So that's what bad would mean in that circumstance. It might mean bad, bad might mean that, um, you know, it's a it's a, a perfectly reasonable house, but it could be more valuable as an HMO. Okay, for example. So, you know, for us, we what we try and do is, is the way that we look at a and, and again, this is important from a customer point of view too. So we will underwrite a deal in this order. So number one, we look at the borrower. Um, if we like the borrower, we then consider the story. Okay. If we like the story, we'll then consider the assets. If we like the asset, we'll then consider the exits. So we always look at a deal in this order. Borrower, story, asset, exit. Because if you've not got a good borrower, you can forget the story. If you've got a good borrower, but the story doesn't stack up, you can forget the assets. Okay, but if you've got a good borrower and the story stacks up, then even if the asset doesn't stack up, then the good borrower with the good story will actually turn that asset that doesn't stack up into an asset that does stack up, 
and therefore you'll be able to get the exit. So we underwrite a deal, borrower, story, asset, exit, and it's as simple as that. That's that's very interesting because I thought it would have been almost the other way around. I thought Bridges would have said, okay, asset first because we got a first charge on it, so it's ours if you yeah. mess around. So good asset, yeah. rest of it, whatever. I mean, is that how Bridges generally work or is it always the way you're saying? What you've described is what I call property form broken. Okay, and, and the vast majority of bridging lenders in this market are what I call property pawnbrokers. They're only interested in the assets. How can, what what's that asset worth? How much are we lending? And the borrowers irrelevant. Okay, because um, whereas what, what, what we've done is we've turned the whole thing on its head completely. And we're saying, actually, who is our covenant? What is our covenant? Um, and the reality is, is that that borrower is our covenant. If we get the borrower right, then the asset is irrelevant because we never need to call to call on it. I see what you're saying. Okay, now that, that's an interesting. Yeah, that that's definitely different to what I assumed. Um, and then just to kind of I guess finish us off on this podcast, could you maybe give us some case studies of I don't know really like challenging or really interesting you know properties or deals that you yeah. you've financed. Wow, um, you know we've done everything from a, a thirty thousand um, pound second charge um, where the customers using our money um, to buy UGG boots for their business. Um, but the, 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 okay, so they they, they uh, you know they, they sell UGG boots into re- into retailers and, and Christmas um, is is their market, um, and so they've got to buy all their stock and pay in advance from um, Australia or China wherever they get getting them from. Put the put the UGG boots into a retailer um, and have a six month thing because they get repaid. Um, when the retailer pays them after the Christmas selling period um, in, in sort of January, February, when they get paid, um, to uh, the new build construction of um, a road, well, to, this one was six townhouses, um, a block of four flats, and um, a, uh, a, a another block of 18 flats that have been used for housing association, um, sell to housing association. So we've done everything um, in between. Um, on those deals, but one deal that particularly um, sticks in in my mind um, is, and again, this is a perfect example um, of, of backing a customer. Okay, was um, there was a um, a building not too far from us in Manchester. Our customer paid one point two million pounds for it. Um, he had gone as far as he could with the incumbent lender that was that, that lent him some money. So that lender had, I think, he was owed about nine hundred thousand um, pounds. The customer bought the property. It had permitted development to convert this big old um, warehouse uh, into 20 apartments. Our customer came to us and said, look, um, I've uprated up or, or I've got planning consent for 20, for 26 um, apartments, um, but I need more money to um, finish off initially the top floor. Um, I'm going to put five apartments in the top floor. We give, gave the customer facility for £1.32 million. Um, the strategy with that customer was that um, they would finish the top floor five flats. They would sell um, some of those flats on the top floor and we'd give them a facility and we'd roll down the building with them. Okay, But as always, um, things change because the customer um, saw that there was more value by, uh, again, upgrading the planning um, from 26 flats to 30 flats, um, putting in secure parking um, in the basement of the building, 
um, and 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 um, and what happened was he got the planning consent for uh, thirty apartments rather than twenty six. Um, the five flats that the five flats that were almost completed on the top floor became seven flats. So all of the party, all the structure, all the the, the walls had to be internal walls had to be uh, knocked down and, and, and redone because of the, the the space and the different. So we increased our facility with that customer from one point three uh, to roughly one point five million pounds. Um, and I remember being on holiday. Um, this was last summer, not the summer that's just been, but the summer before. I was on holiday. Um, and um, I remember that the first we got a WhatsApp group for the, the staff in the office, and the first message that came, that came through was, "We can't get into work uh, because um, the, there's a fire uh, around the corner from the office." Um, and I think it's I think it's our customers' building that's on fire. Okay, so I was on I was on holiday, um, and I'm watching on the Manchester Evening News as um, the, the the fire, and it looked like there was a helicopter, the, the MEN. They had a helicopter in the sky and they were looking down on, on our building and you could see the flames were just, they were everywhere. And I had my head in my hand thinking to myself, this is one half million pounds going up in smoke. And, and obviously we were insured, so we, we would have got our money back, but you just don't want to, you don't want to have the hassle or the, or, or, or the fight to try and get your money back. Anyway, cutting a long story short, it wasn't our, um, it wasn't our building or our customer's building that was on fire. It turned out that it was the building next door, and the building next door we thought was connected to our building, and so there was gonna it could have spread, um, because at the front where where our building was, there was it, it was seemed like the next door building was connected to ours because there was a, a you know the bricks were continuous, okay, there's a drain pipe, and and the, the bricks continued, but it turns out that that those bricks that continued was just the front of the building only. But actually, there was a meter gap behind the bricks between the building that was on fire and our building. And what happened was the building next door completely burned to the ground. Um, it had to be demolished. But what that revealed when it was demolished was that the actual side of our building was actually a, 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 was an architect's dream. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, and so what our customer did was once um, the building next door had been demolished, um, they put... Uh, um, that they sort of sandblasted the side of the building, both front and back. He put lighting all the way around um, to emphasise and to enhance the uh, architectural nature and beauty of, of, of the building. Um, and um, he ended up selling a whole floor on its own. And this was a five-storey building, a whole floor on its own for one and a quarter million pounds. So the fire, rather than... Me, I, I honestly had my head in my hands when I was on holiday, um, and um, it was it was it actually turned out to be the best thing that could have happened, um, because it, it added value to our property. Everything around was was burned cinders, um, and the fire brigade obviously with, with you know with, with 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 the water that was chucked in, um, with with all the hoses, um, the, the, all there was a build there's a rock climbing place behind it that was um, flooded. There was another building that was flooded. Our building wasn't touched. Um, and the building that where the fire was had to be demolished, and it ended up actually uh, enhancing value of our customers' property. So, what I would say to your listeners is, is um, in life, um, the path of property, path of life, doesn't go smoothly. Um, everything happens for a reason, and if you can just stand back and take a breath, sometimes things happen for the best possible reasons. And and I have to say that that fire, um, as devastating as it seemed at the time, it was the best thing that could have happened. <laughs> 
I love that. And that is a fantastic note to end on. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. I think you've had a lot of value and a lot of interesting points that I didn't know about bridging. And I think a lot of the listeners didn't know either. Um, I'll put your contact details in the show notes so people can get a hold of Roma as a, in general. But um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Can I just say one last thing, if I, of if I may, which, 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 which we haven't touched on, and, and, and it's what makes um, us unique. And I've talked about um, the uh, the fact that we focus on the customer rather than the asset, okay, as being one thing. But one last thing, and this is really, really important. Now, I talked about the how we underwrite, so borrow a story, asset, exit, okay? Um, and the exit is really, really, really important because how a bridging lender should underwrite a bridging deal, the the, the lender should be underwriting the exit as much as they're underwriting the, the borrower or the asset. Okay. Now, one of the things that we can do um, is we can offer our customers, once the project is finished, we can offer our customers a five-year buy-to-let mortgage at competitive rates. And so if a customer comes with us, we're able, when the project is completed, we use the same we use the same valuer, so there's no valuation risk, so the same valuer um, values the property from a bridging point of view day one and values it when it's completed. Um, so that removes valuation risk. Um, we allow um, dual rep on the term loan. So again, that's speeding things up and we can go from bridge to term um, within three days. And, and again, a fixed, a, fixed, um, a fixed process. So all we need is a building control completion certificate we need a copy as soon as the property is income producing. Just need if there's HMO, just needs one tenant in there. So it will allow the customer to top slice their income from uh, other sources of income so that they, they can do their, they afford it until the property um, is fully let. Um, but we can go from bridge to term literally in three days. Our lawyer um, will act for both parties on the um, the refinance to, to the term loan, um, and um, our lawyers will do it for a, a fixed fee. Of four hundred fifty pound plus VAT, which is five hundred and forty quid, and there's no other lender, no other bridging lender in the market that can do that. And so, if a customer is looking to de-risk themselves from going into an expensive bridge where they're worried about what the exit is going to be, um, we can um, offer that customer that if they've come done the bridge with us, first of all, we can offer that customer an exit um, onto one of our one of our terms, and that is something that's completely unique. Um, in the uh, almost completely unique in, in in the bridging market. Wow! So almost like a bridge to let kind of product. It's it's a bridge to let project. Uh, product, yeah, absolutely amazing. We do the bridge and then we convert from bridge to term. I like that. I think a lot of people are going to like that. It's it's much 100%. needed in the absolutely in the market. And what that does is it allows the customer to take equity that the. the increased equity that they the, the, the profit that they've made in the property they could take the equity out of that property on the term loan and use that money they've taken out to to, to, to put that towards the next project yeah to go again i like it yeah amazing well i'm glad you shared that scott thank you so much brilliant thank you thank you Tej. if you like this podcast connect with tej on facebook linkedin and youtube for more great content